My name is Phil Stinson, and I'm an Associate Professor of Criminal Justice at Bowling Green State University. In this episode of the Police Integrity Loss Podcast, we listen to a recording of an interview of me by Eugene Purier that originally aired on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. on August 31st, 2017. Today we are talking about a little bit uh, more as it concerns uh, police officers being charged for certain things and perhaps uh, some of the best practices around dealing with police violence and misconduct and the like. And we are joined and very happy to be joined by Dr. Philip Stinson, who's an associate professor in the criminal justice program at Bowling Green State University in Ohio. Dr. Stinson, thank you so much for being with us again. Well, thanks for having me. Oh, of course, of course. And so, relatively big news this week, Marco Proano, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, who's a Chicago police officer, uh, was uh, at least declared guilty here by a federal jury, two felony counts of using excessive force and violating the victim's civil rights. The Chicago Tribune said it was the first time anyone could remember, uh, I don't know who they asked, but that's what they said, that a police officer in Chicago had been convicted in an on-duty shooting. So I guess pretty big deal uh, as it went. Some of your thoughts uh, on seeing this uh, this jury verdict? Well, I think there are several things that are interesting about this case and perhaps separated out from other cases. I think an important thing to consider first off, and thank God it was not a fatal shooting. He did injure two black teenagers. He shot 16 shots into a car. It was captured on video. There were allegations and suggestions that the officer had a reputation of acting like a cowboy, that there were no indications that the shooting was legally justified. In other words, that the officer had a reasonable apprehension of an imminent threat of deadly force or serious bodily injury being imposed against the officer or someone else. These are very, very difficult cases. As we know, the best estimate that we have is that between 900 and 1,000 times a year, on-duty police officers in the United States shoot and kill someone. And it's even more often than that that people are shot by police officers. And to be quite honest with you, Eugene, Really, the government has no clue. I have no clue. It's very difficult to figure out exactly how many people are shot by police officers or shot at by police officers, how often deadly force is employed by police officers across the country. We just don't know that. It's obviously more than a thousand times. It's probably several thousand times a year, if not more, that that happens. So it's very unusual, though, that an on-duty police officer is held accountable criminally in state court or federal court as a result of an on-duty shooting. Uh, because policing is violent, police officers in this country carry guns, and it just seems to be people accept that. It's it's the very unusual case. It's something that's completely over the top, something that cannot be rationally explained that a reasonable officer would have done that results in an officer being criminally charged. And frankly, these cases like this one where it's prosecuted in federal court, United States District Court in Illinois, for criminal deprivation of civil rights. Those are not easy cases because you have to show some sort of racial animus behind the shooting or behind the actions that the officer took. Very, very difficult cases. It does happen that officers get charged with that. That's 18 U.S.C. 242. So we see that every year that officers are charged. Usually it's excessive force that doesn't necessarily involve the use of a firearm. But we do see officers charged. We do see officers convicted. But it's very difficult. So what separates this case I think, right off the bat, is that we have a video of the incident. Yeah, no, I think that's, uh, and on the, the, the dash cam of the car, which my assumption is 
the guy must have known that he was probably on on film, which, you know, in and of itself, I think, speaks to motivation. But I'm glad you raised that issue because Michael Slager uh, also convicted on the federal charges. And I mean, this has been such a, a controversial issue. Well, not now in the Trump administration, but over the Obama administration around whether they should have brought more. And, and I wondered if in a weird sort of way, the context because I agree with you, it's a very high bar uh, to prove, you know, sort of race, racist intent a lot of times with a lot of these people, especially when people sort of know that that, you know, how those views are, are looked at. But if maybe juries perhaps are seeing these cases in a different light, given how much has just been brought into the public sphere around police violence, around disparities in policing and so on and so forth, that in some ways, perhaps even if the bar is higher, the way maybe it sort of manifests in jurors' minds it maybe is a little more, I don't, I don't know exactly what I'm trying to say here, but perhaps you get sort of a, a sense of where I'm at. If maybe perhaps the bar is somewhat lower in a jury's mind, even though it's higher legally, just because of what we all now sort of have seen about policing. I think it comes down to each case is different and the prosecutors have to prove their case. And the burden is on the prosecution to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. So I, it's difficult for me to generalize. I, I think with Michael Slager, the police officer in North Charleston, South Carolina, who shot a man in the back who was running away from him. I think there, quite honestly, when we look at the the federal case, and he was convicted by guilty plea of the same criminal offense that we see Officer Priano in in, uh, Chicago convicted of by a jury trial this week, quite honestly, I think that with Slager, it came down to rolling the dice. He had hanging over his head a retrial. He had a mistrial in the state court system on murder and manslaughter charges. And I think that it simply came down to rolling the dice. He had a good chance of going to prison for a long time. And he and his attorneys elected to uh, to do that in the federal prison system. And if I were him, I think that's probably a better option than serving a very lengthy prison sentence, potentially in the South Carolina state system. Uh, I'm just going to hazard a guess that that may be something that came into play there. And interestingly there, we saw as part of that plea bargain, it was a global release, a global bargain where the state agreed not to retry him on the murder charges. And that's really interesting because it's not a state case, but that was part of the global settlement. So we haven't seen Michael Slager sentenced yet. That's going to happen shortly in the next few months. And I think that uh, it's going to be interesting to see. I I would assume that he's going to get a fairly lengthy uh, prison sentence. And I think that the officer in this case will get a lighter sentence, uh, Officer Priano. You know, one point you mentioned uh, a few minutes ago about we assume that Officer Priano knew that he was uh, being recorded because the dash cam video was in his cruiser and that it was on. You know, we've seen something recently that would suggest that maybe they forget about it. You know, they get used to the technology being there. We've had a few cases in the past six months where police officers across the country have actually been caught on video planting evidence. I think you and I have talked about a case in Baltimore that way. We've had uh, several instances where officers committed crimes. One was a domestic violence case where the officer went home and engaged in uh, domestic violence while they're still wearing a, uh, a body cam that was recording. I think they forget about it. It's just like anything else. Once you're used to wearing it or once you're used to the equipment, you really don't think too much about it. So I think that that may come into play. We now know that some of these body cams actually record on a loop and they actually save the recording uh, going back 30 seconds or a minute before the officer turns it on. And that's what happened in Baltimore. They sort of got caught up with uh, that recording in a loop that actually got saved when they were planting evidence didn't think about the fact that if they started to record, it would record back 30 seconds or a minute. But it's interesting. And again, you know, you and I have talked about this before, and I think the technology is still 
unfolding in terms of how it's going to be deployed, what sort of technology is going to be available a decade and now, how we're going to deal with all this. I think it's important that interactions with police officers in this country be recorded whenever possible by whatever means possible. So sometimes the dash cam videos don't tell us the whole story because if the camera is pointed across the hood of the police cruiser and that's looking in one direction, but the activity actually is off camera, sometimes we just get the audio uh, and it's very helpful. Other times, there's also video from a uh, smartphone, from uh, citizens, or body cams, or even surveillance and security video recordings. And when you put all the pieces together, it shows a fuller story because so much is often missing from one camera angle. Mm, yeah, no, I think that's that's very true. And I'm glad you brought up the Baltimore thing because now this week, and I think it's towards the end of last week, there was one guy who actually turned himself in and said, well, you know, I'm going to give you this camera because I recreated how I found this evidence. And I just want you to know that I wasn't trying to plant evidence. And I, I, I guess Marilyn Mosby came out and they're making this whole thing that, you know, officers who think there may be something should bring it forward. And she said she expected to see more. But I've just, I have to say I've been very confused. I mean, in things that you've come across is – it just sounds strange to me that you would recreate how you found the evidence. I mean, is there some sort of context here where that is like a legitimate thing that these people are somehow recreating something that couldn't get caught and they're just kind of capture it, you know, for the right way? Or is is that sort of a, a loophole kind of thing? Well, after the fact, I think it's standard practice that crime scenes are sometimes recreated in preparation for trial. So I'm not sure of the circumstances of the incident that you're talking about. I can tell you a case I was involved in. It's close to where you are right today uh, that resulted from the Mount Pleasant riots in D.C. back in, what was it, 1991. So in representing a man who had been shot by a police officer during that whole thing that started actually those riots, months later, we went out as, as the defense team to recreate to figure out if we could learn more about the crime by recreating it. And we went out on a Sunday afternoon and were surprised to see that the same afternoon, the U.S. Attorney's Office uh, you know, team on the case was out there as well doing the same thing. So I think that's a that's a standard practice in policing. It's a standard practice, uh, I guess more accurately stated, in, in prosecuting and defending a case maybe after the fact. So I'm not familiar with the incident you're talking about, but it does seem odd for a police officer to say they were recreating something. For the officer's sake, I hope that he's not just trying to cover um, his tracks now after realizing he got caught doing a bad thing on video. Yeah, no, I, I think that that's a, that's a very relevant uh, issue, and it will be interesting to see how they sort of treat that because they sort of was, seemed to be implying in, in Baltimore that they might be more lenient if you came forward yourself. But nevertheless, you know, one of the issues that also came up in Chicago this week is they're making a big push now towards having more tasers for all the, the, the police officers, and I guess uh, Rahm Emanuel is saying this is part of their sort of post-Laquan McDonald push to reduce fatal police shootings. Obviously, tasers do t- kill people. The Tribune had a very interesting article, and the thing that they were noting uh, and the thing that they were essentially sort of saying was most worrisome to them was that the the records of the use of tasers historically was that the people using them the most also seemed to have the most complaints of all other types use of force wise who had, you know, oftentimes multiple instances of discharging their weapon. And I always sort of wonder that is it sort of when we see these police shootings, when we see these, you know, incidents of police brutality, I mean, how likely is it? Is it just like a random person on the force as opposed to it's a, it's sort of a coterie of people who continually are getting, you know, charged with certain things? Well, I think some officers have a reputation of being far more aggressive than other officers in the way they conduct themselves on the street. You know, I was a 
police officer for several years, a long time ago now, and I know that when I was a police officer, there were one or two other officers I worked with on a regular basis who I knew that if I was going on some sort of a call, like a loud party or you know whatever it was, that somebody was going to get hurt if that officer was there. It was either going to get an officer hurt or somebody else was going to get hurt in a scuffle, but that the odds were if he showed up, uh, somebody was going to get hurt. It was just his style of policing was very, very aggressive. And I think officers who engage in more proactive activity, officers who make more traffic stops than other officers, officers who have more discretionary contacts with members of the uh, public are more likely to have citizen complaints than other officers just because they have more contacts. But I think it, it is a concern that some officers are the ones who, who get in the trouble the most. If we go back and if we had access to the internal affairs records, if we had access to the early intervention, the early warning systems that many police departments use. Sometimes they use them because they're required to as a result of a Justice Department consent decree. They're really risk management systems that flag officer behaviors. If an officer has 20 complaints against them in a year and the average is one in that department, that ought to be flagged. But what we see is that departments ignore those flags and those early warning systems quite often, and they don't make use of the data that they have to realize they might have a problem officer who needs some retraining or closer supervision. To your point, I do think that some officers are uh, more likely to use a taser than other officers, and those are the same officers who might have more complaints and are a little bit high-strung and, and aggressive in their actions. I, I can tell you with tasers, uh, you know, that's not the answer, just, just deploying more tasers in and of itself. I, I did a study that was published several years ago on the criminal misuse of tasers, so conductive energy devices, uh, stun guns, by police officers. And, and what we found there, it was a qualitative study in many respects, but what we found was that the officers who were arrested, who were criminally charged themselves for misusing a taser during their job, they tased people that were no threat to the officer at all. They tased people who were already handcuffed. They tased homeless people. They tased mentally ill people who were not a threat to the officer. They tased each other. They tased teenagers. And I think a lot of this with the tasers goes back to problems with the training. You can go on YouTube and find videos from all over the place of law enforcement officers being trained with tasers. And unfortunately, I think, unfortunately, a lot of times this training involves them shocking each other with the taser gun. And if you watch every one of those videos, they're laughing. Uh, to to the police uh, subculture, to the type of humor that police officers develop over time, it's funny to them. And you wonder, well, if the training is funny when we're shocking each other so we, I guess, know what the experience is like or if we're accidentally shocked in the course of our work, we'll, we'll know what's happening. If you're trained that way, that this is funny, you can see how they'd be misused on the street during the course of their work, that it doesn't permanently leave a mark that could be, I guess, discovered. And it's funny in a way. It's a way, sometimes street justice, to teach somebody a lesson. And that could be humorous in and of itself, I suppose, to some people. So that's problematic as well. And I, I'm glad that um, many of the tasers now, when they're, when they're uh, taken out of their holster, the video starts recording right away. Taser International, or uh, they've changed their name. I can't think of the name of the new company now. They sell video recording equipment, uh, body cams that work in conjunction with their tasers. That's very interesting, and it seems to make a lot of sense. And, you know, I wonder, what 
What's the state of, of, of like whistleblower protections for police officers who come forward? Because I've been thinking about this a lot in the context of uh, Sean King's series in the New York Daily News and the first one where he was talking about the officers there who have brought the lawsuit around the quota system and, you know, pretty much put them out pretty put themselves pretty far out there uh, in terms of really heavily criticizing NYPD practice and, you know, sort of calling a spade a spade, as it were, in terms of racial profiling. But, you know, I also saw a number of cops who, who spoke out for Colin Kaepernick in New NYPD, and they were talking about how they been getting threats and how there was a lot of fear involved and this, that, and the third. And I also sort of wondered, given what we know about the blue wall of silence, if that's an area that needs more sort of focus and attention in terms of giving people the feeling that, well, if you see something wrong and come forward, like, you know, you definitely, well, I don't know, I guess you can never say you definitely won't be retaliated against, but at the very least that you feel some level of, of confidence that you can come forward with this without it, you know, having super negative repercussions. I think the whistleblower laws vary from state to state, but I think that in many respects, the police subculture has not changed in this regard since the times of Frank Serpico and the NYPD some 40 years ago. I think that officers, sometimes when they come forward and blow the whistle, they're shunned, they're driven out of the department. They may not uh, be treated well by other officers. Other times, it's not that way at all. I think we have seen a shift, and I'll give you one example. 30 years ago, it was almost unheard of that a police officer would be arrested by another officer for drunk driving. And we now see a few hundred times a year that I'm aware of across the country, officers arrest other officers for driving drunk. The culture's changed somewhat with younger officers, I think, and I think that there's strength in numbers, so that if there are a number of officers, like with the Colin Kaepernick support, I think that uh, that's a good thing if it's not one person who's getting out there on their own to blow the whistle because they are going to get threats potentially and shunned and not working there for long. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think it's uh, – and Frank Serpico was actually at that press conference, believe it or not. Uh, but, you know, one of the things too before we – well, we have a minute left here, but I'll just say this quickly as well. With the tasers, it seemed to be a major issue. They also seem to be deployed heavily around mentally ill folks, and I I can see why the police officers may do that, but that seems like that's probably not a solution to that issue either. Well, one of the things, you know, I thought we had this fixed 30 years ago, frankly, with um, uh, mobile crisis teams and and counselors working on the street with police officers dealing with mentally ill. It's been a problem for a long time now with deinstitutionalization of the mental health system in this country, and more recently with funding crises with uh, local community-based mental health centers. The police officers quite often are the front lines when dealing with people who are mentally ill, and they don't have the training skills and experience quite often in how to uh, resolve situations without using a taser, thinking they've got to get somebody handcuffed, I suppose. So we do see that it's used. uh, uh, Stun guns are used by police officers far too often against people who are mentally ill. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us. That was Dr. Philip Stinson from Bowling Green State University. That concludes this episode of the Police Integrity Loss Podcast. It was recorded on August 30th, 2017, and originally aired on the Radio Sputnik Show by Any Means Necessary on August 31st, 2017. Support for the Police Integrity Loss Podcast was provided by the Wallace Action Fund of Tides Foundation on the recommendation of Mr. Randall Wallace. My name is Phil Stinson, and I'm an Associate Professor of Criminal Justice at Bowling Green State University in Bowling Green, Ohio. For more information on my research, please go to www.bgsu.edu slash police integrity lost.